Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. I am a liberal. I'm also a Buddhist. In a recent essay at The Unpopulist, I wrote about the intersection of the two, which I see as more than compatible and in fact mutually reinforcing. Buddhist ethics gives us not just the best way to live happy and harmless lives, but also a strong foundation for a genuinely liberal society. And while Buddhist philosophy informs much of the perspective I bring to conversations at Reimagining Liberty, I haven't yet done an episode specifically on it and on how it relates to the kind of liberalism this show is all about. Today, I'm correcting that gap. And rather than just monologue at you, I'm delighted to have my friend and frequent Reimagining Liberty guest Corey Massimino step in as host to interview me. Corey is a philosophy student and a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society, and through many conversations over the years, he's played a significant role in shaping my intellectual perspective. Let me very briefly mention that Reimagining Liberty is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy these discussions and want to get early access to new episodes, you can become a supporter by heading to reimaginingliberty.com. With that, I'll turn things over to Corey. All right. Um, well, thanks for having me on, Aaron, to actually interview you in a, a fun reversal. Um, obviously, I'm a fan of your show, and I'm excited to chat with you about something I am not uh, too knowledgeable about, but a little bit of, in part, thanks to conversations we've had in real life. But I'm happy to kind of dig into this further part. We're going off the article you just published, too, um, on Buddhism and liberalism. And so I think it makes sense to start with uh, you know, give our audience maybe your elevator pitch for Buddhism or, or tell us, you know, in, in the broad, broad strokes, maybe what it is or, and what it has to offer. Maybe if I'm, you know, interested. Yeah. So thank you, Corey, for, for taking on hosting duties today. Yeah. So I, I got into Buddhism about a decade ago, more or less by accident. I had been long time, been a fan of ancient philosophy, but that meant almost entirely the ancient Greeks and, I realized there was more to philosophy than the the Mediterranean world, and so decided I should read more. Picked Buddhism mostly because I knew that the early texts were written in dialogue form, and reading Platonic dialogues was one of the most fun parts of ancient philosophy, and so that's where I went. And then just reading a lot of it, I came to think this is pretty persuasive stuff, um, persuasive enough that I was bummed at how little attention Buddhist philosophy gets in the Western philosophical world and in the academy and so on, because there's a lot of really interesting and I think powerful ideas there. So the the fundamental thing is, you know, the story, the Buddha was an historical figure, but we don't know much about his life, and most of the stories we have are very clearly legends built up over time. But they're they're legends that are informative about kind of the underlying motivations of this philosophy. So the idea is that he was a he was born a prince. His parents tried to keep all of the bad things in the world away from him, so he would be raised without knowledge of the suffering that was in the world. But then one day when he was out and about as a young man in the city, 
Um, he saw a sick person. He saw an elderly person. He saw a corpse. And then he saw a wandering ascetic. And he realized that there was suffering in the world and that this suffering was inevitable. Everyone is going to get sick. Everyone is going to grow old. Everyone is going to die. Those are unavoidable facts of of our the nature of our existence. And so he wanted to look for a way to reduce or stop suffering in our lives. And that's and so then he he went out and he tried a bunch of things with because Northern India and Nepal at the time, there were lots of these wandering ascetics and mendicants and hermits and so on with all sorts of philosophies of, of ending suffering. And he tried them all out and didn't like them. Um, a lot of them were either just hedonism is the answer. Other ones were like extreme self-mortification and so on is the answer. Um, and his answer was instead the the four noble truths, which form the core of Buddhist philosophy. And these are the existence of suffering. Um, it's the first one, just recognizing what it is, the, the causes of it, is the second truth. The third truth is that it can be there's there is a way to address it. And then the fourth is the path that leads to that, which is called the the eightfold path. And and the the underlying insight that I that I found really persuasive and continue to find persuasive is that suffering, which the word in in the early text, in the early language of the text of Pali is dukkha means something more like dis-ease or it's one of the entomological roots is a, a wheel that's kind of all off kilter and so rubs when it turns that there's like stress and and something off is the kind of suffering so it's not pain like we can't we can't do something about the fact like if you break your leg that's going to be painful and there's not really we can't like philosophize our way out of that um, but what he recognizes is that a lot of the suffering that we have in our lives, a lot of the stress is the way is in the way that we think about, respond, internalize these kind of outside, you know, so if you if you break your leg, um, that's going to be painful. But you can make it worse for yourself if you then just like rage against the pain and and fall into sorrow about why did this happen to me? And now this thing that I wanted to do is not going to be able to happen. And, and maybe you get like really mad at the world that you think caused you to break your leg and so on. And all of that is like creating suffering and stress and disease on top of just this fundamental nature. And the same with, you know, death, like death is inevitable, but we can make like the pain of that worse by pretending it's not coming or by dreading it happening, or by just obsessing about it, and so on. And, and so for him, ultimately, there, the, the two kind of core insights are that everything in the world, including ourselves, is constantly changing and is impermanent. So we will die someday. But it's not just that. Like, we change. We change constantly. Our bodies are changing. Our mental states are changing. Our very identity is constantly 
in flux. Um, and and the world is changing too. Everything in the world is constantly changing. Society is changing. Tastes are changing. The physical world is changing. And, and so that's like a, that's just the fundamental nature of reality. And then, but out of kind of a sense of ignorance about that, like I am, I am me and there's a permanence to me and there's an essence to me and that's not going to change and that's not going to go away, that that's a form of ignorance, but it creates suffering in the form of then like craving and clinging because you basically are, I have a conception of how things ought to be or how they are now and I want them to stay that way and I'm going to hold on, I'm going to grasp and cling and thirst for that and hold on to it and then when it inevitably changes because it will or it inevitably goes away because it will that creates this additional this suffering on top and so the way out of suffering isn't to drop out of the world it isn't to give up our interests and the things that we like and our relationships but it's to adjust our perspective on the world to really center this notion of impermanence and change and therefore kind of stop stop clinging and grasping to things but instead you know accept accept that and accept that in the nature of ourselves accept that in like the people around us the world the, the possessions that we have that's a huge source of suffering is like if i can just get this one thing then i'll be happy but once you have it now you're worrying about losing it you know like and and so then that's – and then the Eightfold Path is kind of the – one way to think about it is this is the way that you achieve that shift in perspective. So by cultivating these particular – essentially like virtues and mental skills. So it's, it's wisdom and mental discipline and ethics are, are kind of the groupings of the Eightfold Path. Um, but then also someone who does have this insight, who is in – enlightened or awakened is the term that gets used in Buddhism, will naturally embody these things. So, so you've set up a number of themes, um, both in, in, in your points just there and, and in the essay, um, that, that, that you find central to Buddhism, suffering, uh, impermanence, um, harmlessness. Uh, so I guess I want to focus in maybe on some of these because, because they're very interesting. And when I think about the, um, the salience that that Buddhism seems to give to suffering uh, and the importance of suffering, um, it kind of makes me think. I mean, there, I think there's a lot of people who view suffering as a kind of um, part of the whole, you know, well-rounded human experience. Um, I mean, you might think suffering uh, teaches us things or is good for um, for some sort of growth or moral learning, even. Um, or, or making one, uh, you know, tougher and more resilient. I guess a lot of people think like that. And then more generally, too, I, I, I have I have to think um, there are a lot of situations in which it seems like some sort of, like you said, uh, dis-ease or off-kilterness or um, um, uncomfortability. It feels like maybe those are morally appropriate or at least sensible. Um, I often think about a situation like, you know, you 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 have someone you care about um, and you have to break the news to them that a loved one of theirs has passed away or something. And so, you know, it seems like, well, I shouldn't be giddy with joy to do the, do the right thing in this situation because the right thing is I have to break the news to this person. I have to, I have to tell them the truth. Um, 
And so it feels like maybe something like suffering is, is appropriate there. Um, or even just in, in from, you know, the aftermath of if you're, if you're mourning or grieving, um, as well. Um, so I guess, I guess I'm curious about how, you know, these instances, maybe there's a case for suffering that people make and, and clearly Buddhism, um, doesn't follow that, that path. So then, so then what would you say to people maybe who think Buddhists, uh, underrate suffering? It's a good question. I, I think we first have to say that this is not a this is not a call for callousness. It's not a call for a a perfect emotionlessness either. So the the, the Pali Canon texts, which I should say, so because I mentioned it, like there, Buddhism is a wildly diverse tradition that's been developing for well over 2000 years all across the world um and and so the the version of buddhism that i find speaks most to me is the the version set out in what's called the pali canon which was a couple hundred years a few hundred years after the buddha's death there were you know it had been an oral tradition this was memorization was a really important part of the culture at the time and so people would had memorized the the monks would be the monks who were present to hear the talks that he gave were memorizing them and then sharing them to be memorized by others and they were dividing this up but it was all an oral tradition which is why if you read the text they're like very repetitive in a lot of ways they'll repeat paragraphs with only a word or two difference and it's that was part of the like learning that that was part of the helping with memorization um, and then sometime later they got together and the, all the monks who had memorized this stuff got together and recited it and it was written down and the language it was written down in, it was, was Pali. And that is one of the few like extant kind of complete teachings of the Buddha. There's, there's other teachings that we have that were in Chinese and Sanskrit and so on. But the, the Pali tradition is the one that I tends to speak to me. So, um, and when you read those polytexts, they are they're not emotionless. There's a lot of humor in them. There's a lot of joy and delight and love of friendship. Right? The the one of the texts, one of the the dialogues says that um, basically that friendship, that good friendship, friendship with like admirable people, is the whole of the holy life. And that, that so. Personal connections are highly valued. Um, mourning is is tackled head on. There's there's a, a wonderful um, story in the early texts of a woman. If I'm remembering the the details of this correctly, a mother who has lost her child and she comes to the Buddha because the Buddha was assumed to have supernatural powers by a lot of the people who had heard about him. Um, and said and asks to you know like can you bring back my child? And what he says to her, he says, "Okay, um, I want you to go around the the neighborhood, and if you can find someone else who has not suffered a loss, then I will like bring back your child." And so this mother goes around and she talks to the various people, and all of them are like, "Yes, I've lost one too. I've lost one too." And she comes back, and it's it's this recognition that this is. What she's going through is a shared thing. That there's nothing, you know. It's not. It's not a dismissal of the pain 
that she's feeling at the loss of a child, but that, you know, you're not alone in this is the the realization of it. Um, so it's so that kind of just like turn on, tune in, drop out entirely notion is not present. Um, instead, what it is, is yes, of course, like losing a loved one is is painful. That pain is real. And we can't, A, we can't get rid of that pain unless we're just like sociopaths or kind of broken emotionally and mentally, um, nor would we want to. But the how we respond to that, so you can feel that pain, right? But you could also, you could also make that loss the, the center point of the rest of your life. And, and just kind of heap further suffering upon yourself. And that, that doesn't help the person who you've lost. They're, they're gone. And even if they could see what was happening, that's not what they would want for you, right? It doesn't help you. Like that's that compounding of your suffering doesn't help you. Um, and, and so I think it's, it is much more that it's much more kind of recognizing the ways that we create additional suffering and stress and disease through like not accepting because you can you can respond to that death with an acceptance of like I I loved this person they were important to me but I recognize like the impermanence of life and this is a sign of that you know and I will cherish their memory and so on um or you can respond to it with like why did this happen you know, this shouldn't have happened. This is, you know, the, the like kind of clinging to permanence is is the wrong way to respond to it. And and I think there are other, you know, there are lots of instances where like anger is the appropriate response to the injustices and so on in the world. Um, and and again, this isn't this isn't saying like we should just kind of sit callously by and watch injustices. But by shifting our perspective, by like not clinging, grasping, by recognizing impermanence, by cultivating mindfulness and kind of awareness of the causes of our mental states, it means that we can respond to those things more appropriately. We can respond to them in ways that are more helpful, more caring, um, you know, developing that one of the aspects of developing these these mental skills is what the the buddhists called the the brahma viharas or the divine abodes and those are those are developing like one of them is metta or loving kindness where it's just a generalized feeling of goodwill towards people equanimity compassion like these are very very central but but the idea is to develop them in this in this harmless and helpful wholesome the the term wholesome and unwholesome is really important within Buddhism and there are wholesome and unwholesome mental states um, that lead towards suffering or away from it and so to have this kind of wholesome perspective but that's not the same thing as just like not caring because not caring about the world and the people around you is not a wholesome way to go about life well on, on another, it kind of ties into to one of the other themes too, which is we're talking about, which is harmlessness, um, and that, and that's a, that's a pretty critical in your essay. Um, and I and I guess I have a similar question as I do about suffering as harm, which is you know, um, harm feels maybe like it's unavoidable, or uh, at least practically in life, um, 
Um, if not, again, they may be having positive features, but I at least think about, you know, situations where, um, you know, it feels like harmlessness is a chimera. Um, you know, you have to, you have to pick someone for the job between two people or you, you have two lovers competing, um, you know, and, and doing what's right, um, or what's good or or maybe even wholesome. Um, if that term applies, it seems like still harm is resulting. How do you navigate that kind of thing? How is it possible to just minimize completely? So one way that it's addressed is Buddhist ethics places a large emphasis on intent. Um, and so it is, you should, it is worse to intend to cause harm and then cause harm than it is to not intend to cause harm and to do it. And so your your example of the you have to pick the two people for the job, right? Um, that that's an inevitable choice, and someone's whether that's a harm. You know, I mean, we both work as like the philosophizing all the details of what counts as a harm becomes complicated very quickly. But um, someone's going to be disappointed. They're going to feel hurt, whatever. But you're not. You can make that decision. I'm. I'm genuinely picking the person I think is the best. I. I feel sympathy, empathy, compassion for the person who is not chosen. Like that's a a wholesome way to approach having to make that kind of decision. Versus like I'm going to pick this person because I want to punish the other person, or I. I feel hatred towards the other person, and this is a way to like stick it to them, or. Um, those are those are pretty wildly different approaches, and so the motivation matters a lot in those cases. Um, I think other harms. There's there's interesting. There's an interesting debate among two contemporary Buddhist scholar monks, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Thanissaro Bhikkhu, uh, about just war theory, and. And so both of them are Theravada Buddhists in the Pali tradition. Both of them are influenced by the, the Thai forest tradition, which is a particular subset of it. So they're coming from very similar places. Uh, and and Thanissaro Bhikkhu says basically it's it is hard Buddhism is hardcore pacifism. Like you cannot like you just cannot engage in in war or any sort of violent action or condone it at all. Bhikkhu Bodhi says no and articulates essentially a just war that this is, you can be in these kind of tragic choices where, you know, that the only way to stop a genocide is to engage in actions that would violate the, like, so that in Buddhism, there's the, the five precepts, which are the kind of, they're part of the right action prong of the eightfold path um but but they're also considered like when you want to enter buddhist practice you have to take the five precepts and though they're all based on minimizing harm right so they are you're supposed to refrain from taking life um you're supposed to refrain from taking what is not given refrain from essentially Sexual, sensual misconduct, which is kind of like the hedonism in and and by misconduct means is in ways that are harmful to to others or to yourself. Um, 
refrain from wrong speech, which tends to be like dishonesty, gossiping, lying about others, like speech that is just harmful. Uh, and then refrain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness, which the idea being that these will then cause you to break the rest of the precepts. When you get really drunk, you you know will do these other things, and you, um, and so these are these like very kind of concrete versions of heart. like don't do these things. But then there's this penumbra, and you get the argument about just war theory and all of that. And so ultimately, I think it is, it may be that causing hurt is is inevitable in certain ways. But it's like the perspective that we approach those choices from because and this is you know part of me being drawn to like virtue ethics in the first place is i think you can't reduce ethics and morality to either like a math equation or a flow chart decision process that it's it's inevitably wildly more complicated than that and so the better way to do it is to like cultivate a really ethical perspective on the world and then that's going to lead you in really difficult situations you're going to make the better decision, even if you're not going to get it right all the time, even if it's going to have still tragic consequences, um, it's it's about like that perspective. And so Buddhism is very much about cultivating an internal perspective and then cultivating kind of the mental discipline to hold to it. So on the issue of kind of, uh, I see those parallels as well as someone who's um, been quite favorable to, to virtue ethics and um, and that kind of approach, like you said, this less mechanical, uh, more about cultivating a kind of wisdom or skill. Um, uh, but 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 along those lines, you know, I was thinking, reading your piece, um, you know, it feels like it's um, everything is impermanent. Uh, yes, that's true. I think um, uh, uh, on a long enough time scale. But isn't there kind of uh, degrees and um, gradients to that? Isn't there kind of a spectrum to um, uh, something's permanence uh, or its lack? Because I think that's the way, I think that's a, a very common sense response to um, philosophies that really emphasize impermanence and flux. I mean, you mentioned in your essay too, the parallels to Heraclitus in Greece and stuff like that. So like, I mean, no, nothing's around forever, but things are around for some time. You know, we have certain institutions or uh, certain legacies and certain traditions. I mean, Buddhism is one of them. I mean, Buddhism won't last forever, uh, presumably. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of people would say, you know, we have reason to maybe not to to ruin our lives when something is over, like you said earlier, you to make that the center point of your life moving forward or something. But in terms of clinging and holding on while they're still around, um, or, or, or not letting them go too easily. Um, maybe, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think of maybe that line of thought? I think a lot of the conservatives, and I use that very broadly here in terms of caring about what is and what's been, and in some sense wanting to preserve it, um, or at least defaulting to that if there are any good reason otherwise. Um, you know, what do you say to that kind of viewpoint? I think it's a really interesting question. And, and I think part of it is, how much we want to zoom in or out on our perspective. So let's set aside like mountains are impermanent because they erode over time, right? And and continents shift over an extraordinarily long time scale. 
But for the purposes of your and my life, Corey, like the Rocky Mountains feel pretty permanent. Uh, let's bracket those kinds of like geological features and so on and look instead, and I think this this is important for the the liberalism aspect of this too, at at things like institutions. You know, so you might be a let's say you're a you're a member of your local Catholic church. Okay. And and you're very like you're very involved in that as this important institution to you. Is that permanent? Well, no. I mean, in the same way that like that the mountains aren't permanent, right? Um, it's ultimately it's not. But does it feel more like the permanence of the mountains in terms of like over the course of your life, it's pretty permanent? Um, again, it depends on like what we basically what we mean by this thing in the first place. Because on the one hand, this thing called the Catholic Church has been around for quite a long time, will continue to be around for quite a long time. But on the other hand, the congregation is shifting all of the time. Families move out of town, other ones come in, people attend more regularly, less regularly. The the priest might shift, you know, it's might retire and a new one comes in, or the priest's perspective might change. The building that you're meeting in might, you know, it's constantly being repaired and upgraded. And so the materials in it are changing. And and so we could, if we zoom in, we could see this thing is in a constant state of flux. If we zoom all the way out to the level of like the Catholic Church, it feels more permanent. And and I think that applies to all of these kinds of institutions to to culture shifts in this way and i think a lot of the a lot of the problems that we run into with particularly social conservatism is is essentially equivocating between those levels that we're looking at things and so saying like i want i have a particular conception of what this institution or or this aspect of culture means and i want that to be permanent and and if i zoom out far enough i can tell a story about why it's permanent and why it's part of this like big constant tradition but then i'm going to get i'm going to insist upon essentially the 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 zoomed in constant flux stopping Right, and I'm going to get mad when that happens, and that that level of like constant change is is inevitable and again constant. Um, and so, so I think we can we can think about these concepts often as being as having not permanence, but something that looks more sustaining. But at the ground level of the actual things that make up these these institutions, these cultures. Those are in constant flux, and as a result, the cult, the the institution or culture is always evolving and always changing. Right. It reminds me a lot of uh, I don't know if you've read uh, the late Steve Horowitz's book Hayek's Modern Family, but 
the the same exact point that you're making has been in regards to the specific institution of family, you know, has been with us forever, but the specifics of it have evolved with context and especially economic conditions, for instance, over time, you know, people talk about the nuclear family as if that's the kind of family that was around all the time. And like you said, that's an instance of, no, you're taking the kind of family that was formed arguably out of kind of artificial and temporary conditions, maybe in mid 19th, mid 20th century America and projecting that out onto the entire institution. Um, and, and maybe that's a good, good place in which to bring the show to, to connect Buddhism to the other major uh, point in your essay, which is liberalism. Um, so, you know, zooming out to the society level, I suppose. And so maybe you could tell our audience, uh, briefly, you know, the, the connection you see there, um, and why this is such a, um, important, uh, fusion for you. I was a liberal long before I got into Buddhism. And for the first several years that I was reading a lot of Buddhism and and even for a while after I decided I was persuaded enough by this stuff that I should – it was reasonable to call myself a Buddhist, I didn't really connect the two you know, aspects of my intellectual life at, at a deep level. Um, but I have come to see them as, as – deeply connected and and like mutually reinforcing and and the way that i think they connect is if you know buddhism is this wildly complicated philosophy with lots of aspects and so on but the the two that i'm emphasizing for these purposes here are our impermanence constant change and then this this harm this ethics of of harmlessness you know so the the idea the ultimate kind of drive of that is everyone is seeking happiness um, there's it's it doesn't make sense to kind of privilege your own happiness over like your quest for happiness over others because you're not more valuable than they are um and so we should look for to use the this scholar, that scholar monk Thanissaro Bhikkhu, um, that I mentioned earlier, he he refers to this as a a deathless happiness in the sense that it's a happiness that that can that can persist and doesn't require essentially the lack of happiness of others. That can exist in kind of mutual compatibility with them, and and so if we're seeking that, and it's not just that that's good from the sense of it's wrong to harm others. But by being harmless, that kind of frees up our – that instills in us mental states that are conducive to our own happiness and and lack of – like and stepping out of these, these unwholesome mental states that lead to suffering on our own part too. So me not harming you is good for you, but it's also good for me. Um, so that aspect and then the impermanence. I really think that those form the core of liberalism because I think what liberalism ultimately is – and liberals disagree wildly amongst themselves about all of the details – is, as I put it in the essay, is first a, a recognition of the high value of individual liberty that is grounded in an appreciation of the equal moral worth and self-authorship. Of all. And so this is this is the harmlessness. Like 
you are pursuing your happiness. I'm pursuing my happiness. We should try to do this in a way that is mutually compatible. We should not be hurting each other and so on. And we should, that should be like really core to our, our ethics. And then it's, it is a perspective because I think, I think liberalism, liberalism is a theory of institutions. It's a theory of the state and so on. But I really think at its core, like liberalism is a perspective you take on the world and then the political rules and institutions fall out of that. Um, and so you tie that kind of harmlessness and recognition of self-authorship and shared dignity and so on to seeing value in social diversity and dynamism that is first like a necessary consequence of of individual liberty respect for the rights of others and the respect for their rights of self-authorship because if you if you respect those things and you have a society that enables those things the natural diversity of people is going to meet mean that you're going to have social diversity and you're going to have this this impermanence and dynamism the only way to stop social change from happening is to radically restrict people's ability to live their lives as they choose um, and and even then you're not going to end up with a society that's permanent authoritarian regimes change or collapse and so on um, and so like hardcore social conservatism like i want the society to stay the way that I want it to be is is ultimately a failed project. It cannot succeed in a world that is first off, it's it flat out fall fails in a world that is like genuinely free, but even in a world that's not free, it it will fail in the end. And so you you see the value in that. Um, and those two things ultimately just form the core of liberalism. So the Buddhist idea of harmlessness and impermanence in just recognizing that in the world and seeing the ethic of recognizing that turns into liberalism in the sense that a liberal society is one that says, you know, to go back to those, those early precepts, don't hit people or kill them. Don't take stuff from them that wasn't given to you. That's you know, libertarians used to equip that the um, like libertarianism is just don't hit people and don't take their stuff, right? Like that's basically what those first two precepts are. Um, marry that to then this perspective that says, not only do I recognize that impermanence and dynamism, change, diversity are inevitable. But that recognizing that, embracing that, internalizing that perspective is actually like a way to be happier in the world. Um, that's just that's just liberalism, right? Like that's the perspective that gives us liberalism, and then we can work out the details of the institutions and the the governing system, or you know. But but I think yeah, like if you take if you just say what does a what does a society built on these core Buddhist understandings look like, it looks like a liberal society. And then a liberal society, living in a liberal society, like the way that you are happy in a liberal society versus being miserable at your neighbors, you know, having weird tastes or changing their gender or sending their kids to schools you don't like or whatever, the way that you're happy in that society is to embrace that dynamism and change and and find a way to 
think it's awesome as opposed to thinking it's something you should constantly like rage against and have aversion to. Uh, and so I don't think like a liberal society doesn't need to be a Buddhist society, obviously, right? But I think these insights from Buddhism give us a better understanding of the benefits of a liberal society. And then the question of like, how does one find happiness in a liberal society points back to like these Buddhist insights give us answers to that question. That naturally leads into, I think, what uh, is, I think, the kind, a kind of obvious uh, question um, for anyone trying to fuse liberalism with a number of different philosophies, but especially here, which is if there's such a natural fit, if Buddhism and liberalism are so mutually reinforcing, obviously you're aware Buddhism came around thousands of years ago. It takes a long time to get fully fledged liberalism. I know you point to some seeds maybe in your article of liberalism, but still it takes a long time to get. And still now it's a rare combination, both on the individual level, you're, it might be the only Buddhist liberal I know, I don't know, probably top five at least, but, and then on the society level of uh, combining them as well. So why do you think that is? I mean, I, I get the theoretical uh, mutually reinforcing, but then in practice, we have divergence and that's strange. A lot of it is historical contingencies. So democracy as a governing system rose in the West and then was tied to, as a result, Western culture and, and Western religious views. Um, the, the Eastern world didn't have the democratic traditions. Buddhism itself, because it was largely a um, initially a religion of monks who were mendicants, meaning they kind of dropped out of society to, to go and practice, were not heavily involved in the, the political sphere. Um, the, the collapse of Buddhism in, in India um, meant that it was, it was essentially a, a religion of a diaspora without a lot of power um, and, and kind of was one that counseled against seeking power. It's also the case that there was not, there's not a lot of explicitly political philosophy in the the Buddhist canon. So you can find you can find some. There's a handful of dialogues where the Buddha advises kings, and and often what he says sounds relatively compatible with liberalism, um, like basically protect the people from violence and banditry, make sure that there's sufficient infrastructure. Um, and, and there's even a remark about kind of keeping taxes at a reasonable level. Um, but it was never, politics was never kind of central to the philosophizing. So there's not a rich tradition of political theorizing within it. Um, and, and then the countries that did become predominantly Buddhist and have nominally Buddhist governments, Thailand um, and Burma and so on, for all sorts of other reasons, just weren't weren't liberal societies. Um, so I think that this I think this compatibility runs deep. You know, there's there's an interesting book by a um, professor named Matthew Moore who about Buddhist political theory, like trying to tie together what is there. And 
and he does he remarks that the so the the community of monks and the Buddhist community is referred to as a sangha. So when you become a Buddhist, you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, which is the teachings, and then the Sangha, which is the the community. Um, and he mentions that the early Sangha, the governing structure of the early Sangha, was, in his words, a form of enlightened anarchism. Um, it's so it's it's always been that, but it just wasn't it wasn't thinking politically, and it was in a part of the world where the there wasn't a, a democratic liberal tradition. And then I think in the West, it hasn't it hasn't gotten attention because partly there's like an intellectual ethnocentrism that I still think dominates a lot of like Western philosophy, that, that philosophy means Western philosophy and what people are doing in other parts of the world is really just like religion or mysticism or so on and not worth, you know, not worth paying a lot of attention to. Um, that's changing, thankfully, um, and and so I think we'll probably get more like interesting. You know, how does Buddhist ethics apply to various domains? Um, but ultimately, like I don't know that it matters because there's no one way to argue for liberalism. You know, there are lots of traditions and ethics that can get you to the the genuine truth that people deserve freedom and society is better when people are free. Um, and and for me, Buddhism is a appealing personal ethic and practice, and one that I think also has interesting things to say about justifying that that free society. But that doesn't mean that like it should happen to the exclusion of other arguments or that there aren't other arguments that are powerful and persuasive for getting there. So I'm more just saying this is a set of ideas that I find incredibly appealing, that I that have enriched my life, that I find really interesting and have something to say about liberalism in a way that I think is distinct from how it often gets talked about and can enrich our understanding of, of these important ideas. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you like the show and want to support it, head to reimaginingliberty.com to learn more. You'll get early access to all my essays, as well as be able to join the Reimagining Liberty Discord community and book club. That's reimaginingliberty.com, or look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.